You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem to set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, City on a Hill, my name's Dave, part of the team here. It's great to be with you today. It's a bit sad to be with you like this, but great to be with you nonetheless as we launch into this awesome passage. Let's pray together for God's help. God, we really, really want to encounter Jesus today. So we ask you, work amongst us by your Spirit. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that are open. And we pray that as we do, you would change our lives, all for the glory of your Son. Amen. Well, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I play in wedding bands. A lot of musicians think that the wedding circuit is where budding musical careers go to die. It's where you go and you sell your soul as a musician, playing horses for the hundredth time to a half-empty dance floor, mostly populated by pensioners. But I love it. The reason I love playing in wedding bands is because of the songs. A lot of people look down on the set list, right? They're simple tunes, mostly pop and rock from the last 40 years. Nothing complicated or sophisticated about it. But the thing I love about these tunes is they're familiar. There's something special about getting together with a group of random strangers and all singing along because you all know the words. But even though these songs are mostly familiar, every now and then they throw up a surprise. I was shocked and horrified this week when a friend of mine pointed out that a song I thought was beautifully familiar was far from it. I'm thinking of the Pina Colada song. You know it, it's a classic. If you love Pina Coladas, getting caught, I'll stop for all of our sakes. You've got that song stuck in your head now. Try a cold shower, that helps. Uh, but, But as long as you know the song, I'm willing to bet you only know the chorus. Right? That's the bit that you think of when you think of the Pina Colada song. This week, 
I realized that song's not about what I thought it was about. I thought it was about pina coladas, but a friend of mine encouraged me to read the verses. Check out the lyrics to verse one. I was tired of my lady. We'd been together too long, like a worn out recording of a favorite song, vicious. So while she lay there sleeping, I read the paper in bed and in the personal column, there was a letter I read. If you like pina coladas. It's a horrifying tune. I thought it was a happy song about drinks on the beach. It turns out it's a devastating tale of an extramarital affair as this guy looks for someone else. And yet wedding DJs everywhere play this every weekend. It just goes to show that even when you think something might be familiar, it pays to take a closer look. And I reckon that's a little bit like our passage today. Jesus doesn't have an extramarital affair or anything. It's not a perfect analogy. But this is one of those passages where it's familiar. It's worth taking a closer look because when we do, there's a lot more going on than we might think. This passage, the, the temptation of Jesus by the devil in the wilderness, it pops up in three of the four Gospels, which is partly why it's so familiar to many of us. And the story seems pretty simple. At first, Jesus is in the desert and the devil tempts him three times. And each time, Jesus doesn't give in. He quotes scripture back to the devil and resists him until eventually the devil gives up and Jesus wins the day. It's a good story. And that's all true of this story. But as we look closer, there's a lot more going on than we might think. In fact, there's some confusing and maybe even concerning elements to this passage that should cause us to pause and wonder what's going on. For me, as I have read it this last couple of weeks, I've got three questions that come up from the temptation of Jesus. And they're these. What's the deal with the desert? What's the deal with the devil? And how does this help me with my temptation? They're going to be our three headings today. So let's start at the start. What's the deal with the desert? Get off to a familiar start. Verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. When you look up close, it's a strange start. Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, is led straight to the wilderness for temptation. He's not accidentally there. He's not there minding his own business when suddenly the devil turns up and starts to tempt him. No, Jesus is in the desert intentionally for the very purpose of being tempted, which is kind of strange. I mean, Jesus has this fairly famous prayer, lead us not into temptation. And yet the Spirit leads him straight there. So what's the deal? Why is Jesus in the desert in the first place? What's a good result? from this? Well, I, I think there's some clues in the context. It, if this passage is like the chorus to that familiar song you all know, it pays to look at the verses before it to see if they throw any extra light on the story. And if you do that with this passage, the verses straight before Luke chapter 4 are a genealogy, a family tree, which is kind of strange. When we come to this passage in Matthew and in Mark's gospel, it's an exciting point in the story. Jesus has just been baptized. 
and the clouds part and God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus goes on to start his public ministry. There's a real sense of anticipation that that Jesus' train is leaving the station. You want to get on board. But Luke is a little bit different. Still have the baptism of Jesus and it's still exciting. There's still this sense that the Jesus' train is leaving the station. But then this totally pedestrian passage wanders onto the tracks and forces us to slam on the brakes. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, and so on and so forth for 340 painfully slow words. It's like we're watching this movie and like 15 minutes in, just after you meet the main character, the credits start rolling. What's going on? Well, if you look closely at the genealogy, You see some familiar names in Jesus' family tree. You see David, Judah, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. It's it's just a who's who of Jewish history. And there can be no doubt from this genealogy that Jesus is very much an Israelite. Luke is at pains to align Jesus with the nation of Israel. Why? Well, look at what Jesus says throughout this passage. He speaks three times to the devil. You'll be able to see it in your Bible. In verse 4, it is written, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. In verse 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Verse 12, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And if you look at those three statements in your own Bible, you might notice Jesus doesn't say a single original word. Every single word he says in this passage comes from Scripture. You'll see it in the little footnotes. That Each of these statements sends you to another text. It's like a hyperlink. And if you click on it, you realize this rabbit hole all the way down ends up at Deuteronomy, chapters 5 to 8. A single sermon that Moses preaches. Every statement from Jesus in this passage is from this same sermon. And as Moses preaches to the people of God, they stand in the desert on the edge of the Jordan River at the end of 40 years of wandering. And Moses says to them, be faithful to the Lord your God. Do not fail where those before you have failed which is just so incredible when you consider where Jesus is now. He's also in the desert at the edge of the Jordan River. Where they had 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus stands at the end of 40 days. And in his mind, on his lips, is a single message. Do not fail where those before you have failed. Be faithful to the Lord your God. What Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 4 is reliving the story of Israel. He's stepping into their shoes, walking where they walked. But he's also doing more than that. Jesus is reliving the story of Israel and he's rewriting the ending. Right now, as Jesus faces down the temptations of the devil, he stands where Israel once stood, facing the same test 
that they failed. They failed to be faithful to their God. They failed to resist temptation. They bowed the knee and worshipped other gods. They failed to trust the God who saved them. But Jesus is different. In Luke 4, Jesus holds his ground. And in doing so, he passes the test others have failed. He keeps the covenant that no one else had been able to keep. He sparks a new hope for the people of God. So what's the deal with the desert? It was not an accident. Jesus is there to relive the story of Israel and rewrite the ending. How does that help us? We'll get there. Before we do, though, there's another question I want to pause at, which takes us to part two. What's the deal with the devil? We might kind of get now why Jesus was in the desert. But have you ever wondered why the devil was there? Like, what's his goal? What's he trying to do? What's a good result from the devil's point of view? Because I reckon the more we look at what he's actually tempting Jesus to do, the less clear it becomes. Look at the first temptation. Now, Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Cheeky little cameo from our friend Captain Obvious there. He was hungry. Then in verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. The devil says, if you are the son of God, which, which is not in doubt, by the way, given the very last chapter featured Jesus' baptism, where God drops this colossal hint, this is my son. So it's probably better translated here, since you are the son of God. Like the devil knows who he is. Since you are the son of God, says the devil, tell this stone to become bread. And when you think about it, that's not such a bad idea. There's no law against that. Jesus is hungry and God's made bread out of other things before. In, in just a few chapters, Jesus is going to feed more than 5,000 people with another bread-based miracle. So what's the issue if Jesus were to do this? The last temptation of the three temptations is also a bit similar. The devil says, if you are the son of God, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, the top of the temple. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil's essentially saying, hey, Jesus, since you're the son of God, jump off from the temple so that God can rescue you. Would that be so bad? If God were to show his power to send his angels to save his son, what's the issue there? Well, the middle temptation is a little bit clearer. In verse 5, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, this one's a little bit more obvious in its naughtiness. There's a clear takeaway from this sermon. It's do not worship the devil. All right, remember that. But did you catch the first half of what he's saying? The devil is trying to give Jesus all of the authority and all of the glory of all the kingdoms in the world. Which is kind of the reason Jesus has come to earth in the first place. To bring the kingdom of God and to be the king of it all. 
Would that be so bad? What's the devil after here? What's his goal? What's the problem with what he's offering? What's the deal with the devil? Well, here's what I think. It's pretty clear that by now in Luke, Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's chosen one that God's people have been waiting for for generations. Simeon called it last week. This man will be the Messiah. But the question that rings throughout the desert is this. What kind of Messiah will he be? See, the temptation of the devil is not just about sinning. The devil wants to offer Jesus the crown without the cross. This is not just about sin. It's about whether Jesus will use his power for himself or for others. It's about whether he'll trust God or trust himself. It's about whether he'll seize the glory or wait and walk the path that God has laid out for him. See, the devil wants to offer Jesus the crown without the cross to skip the step of trusting God and his plan. And the question ringing through the desert is, what kind of Messiah is Jesus going to be? Well, he answers that question beyond a shadow of a doubt in the desert and in the rest of the gospel. He resists the offer, the temptation of the devil, but he goes even further. In the Garden of Gethsemane, confronted by his impending arrest and torture and death, he prays, God, not my will, but yours be done. Even as he hangs on the cross, Jesus prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The crown of glory is achieved through the suffering of the cross. The path to becoming the king that God has promised is a path marked with suffering. And it's a path that Jesus willingly walks. He was obedient even to death on a cross. He was righteous, selfless right to the end. And in Jesus, we see the righteous one dying for the rest of us. Where we have failed, he succeeds right to the end. In Jesus, we see a human that kept the covenant all the way to death in a way no one else had been able to do. And in Jesus, our King becomes our Savior. His righteousness is given to us. Though we failed, we can be forgiven. So that's the story of the temptation. It might be a familiar story, but there's so much more going on. It gets to the very identity of Jesus. The very heart of his mission, what kind of Messiah is he going to be? 
The answer is he's going to be the kind of king who can save us from our sins. The question is, how does this help us with our temptation? Like when we're faced with a choice, how does the story of Jesus' temptation help us? I mean, there's the obvious application. Don't worship the devil. Let's not forget that one. But in the trenches of life and the temptations we face there, when we're, when we're caught in a habit, when we're faced with a decision, when sin lurks at the door, how does this encounter with Jesus help us? Well, here's what I think we can learn. When it comes to facing Jesus, uh, when it comes to facing temptation, be like Jesus, but not too much like Jesus. Be like Jesus, but not too much like Jesus. Let me explain. What we see in Luke chapter 4 is an incredible example for us to emulate in some ways. It is just so strikingly clear that Jesus resists temptation and we want to do the same. He refuses to give in and the reason he does is because he trusts his Father in heaven. He doesn't need to turn the stone into bread because he knows God will provide. He doesn't need to jump off the temple to test God because he knows that God is for him. He doesn't need to seize the glory and the authority of the kingdoms of the world because he knows God's got a better plan. He trusts God. And how often is it true that our giving in temptation is a failure of trust? from Adam and Eve right through to today, as they failed to trust God's goodness in the garden and pave their own path. How often is our sin a product of mistrust, of faithlessness, when we give in to lust because we don't trust that God's design for sexuality is actually good? We give in to anger because we don't trust that God will be just in the end, we give in to greed because we don't trust God to provide for us. We don't trust always that the path of the cross is the way to the crown. But Jesus shows us it does. That is the way. It might look foolish to the world, but God calls us to take up our cross and follow Jesus. He's our model for how to trust God in the face of temptation. So trust God. Be like Jesus. But at the same time, don't be too much like the Jesus we meet in this passage. Because there are some pretty significant differences between you and him. For starters, we see at the start of this passage that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert to be tempted. Now, if I'm reading my New Testament right, I'm pretty sure that the Holy Spirit leads us in exactly the opposite direction. Again and again and again, the Bible offers Christians the same piece of advice about temptation. Flee. Don't run towards it. Run away from it. 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, 
2 Timothy 2, so flee youthful passions, passions and pursue righteousness. Again and again, the New Testament says, run away from temptation. Now we need to know that we can do that. We can only do that because Jesus has faced it down for us first. The devil has been defeated. The story of Israel has been rewritten. The covenant has been kept on our behalf. Jesus did that for us. So when it comes to temptation, don't try and be a hero because we've already got one. This is why Jesus teaches Christians to pray, God, lead us not into temptation. It's because he was led into temptation for us. Friends, it's just not your job to go picking a fight with the devil. The call is not for you to stand there and face him. It's to flee temptation, to do what you can to avoid those situations. I was so encouraged recently by, by this couple I know. They, they've been together a long time, but they were engaged right in the guts of the pandemic. And that just wreaked havoc with their wedding plans. They had to move the date again and again and again. And one of the unfortunate complications of all of that mess was that they suddenly found themselves with the place they'd planned to live being theirs before they were married. And so they were living there together, but realized this was inviting temptation. So rather than wrestle with temptation, rather than stand up to face it and hang in there as long as they could, they fled and he moved out. It's just such a financially silly decision. It's so inconvenient. It's so costly and it's totally godly. It's exactly what the New Testament would tell us to do. That our first point of call in resisting temptation is to flee. And so maybe you hear your colleagues chatting about your boss behind their back and complaining about how incompetent or unfriendly or whatever You could stay there and try and resist the temptation to get involved. Or you could just leave the conversation. Maybe you're working from home, alone. And you hear the siren call of a website you know you shouldn't spend any time on. You could try and sit there and ignore it and work on other things. Or you could actually go for a run. Literally flee. Whatever it looks like. This is a point at which we're supposed to be a little different to Jesus. He's led into the desert for temptation. We're called to flee. Now, I'm aware that even in our best efforts to flee, we will still be tempted. We will still face temptation. We'll still have choices of whether we're going to trust God or go the other way. And in that moment, We need to remember there's another big difference between Jesus and us. Because when Jesus walked into the desert, he did it knowing that everyone before him had failed. But when we're faced with temptation, we can do it knowing that there's one before us who did not fall. One who was righteous 
and obedient to the very end. And that changes everything. Check out this passage in Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was fully like us. The genealogy tells us at least that much. He was really human, a son of Adam, just like me and you. And he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to face those moments of weakness, which means you're not alone. He sees you. He gets it. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, but he was without sin which unlocks for us the rest of this passage in Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus went into the desert and won. Because he was the righteous Messiah all the way to the end. Because he's the one who goes before us and wins our battle. We can draw near to God with confidence, even when we fail. Even when we give into temptation, even as we stumble, we can continue to turn to God to come to him to find mercy and grace in our time of need. Even when you fail to trust God in the face of temptation, you can trust God in the face of guilt. You can trust God when he says he'll still love you. You can trust God when he says he still welcomes you. He still wants you to come to him. He forgives you. He wants to bring you home. So trust God and come to him. It might be that you've never done that before. Something's been keeping you from believing in God or putting your trust in God and coming to Him. Those things don't need to stand between you and God. Jesus has died to deal with them and you can be forgiven and welcomed into His family. So if you want to put your trust in God, you can. Maybe a place to start is raise your hand in the comments and the prompt that's given to you below. But friends, if you've been a Christian for a long time, the advice is exactly the same. Trust God and come to Him. It may not be the first time you've had to make that decision. It might be the thousandth. You've fallen again. You've failed again. You've given into temptation yet again, and the shame keeps growing. But the advice is the same. Jesus is the righteous Messiah who died to deal with your guilt. So trust God and come to Him. Turn to Him again and again and again. Come with confidence to find mercy and grace 
in your time of need. So friends, be like Jesus. Not too much like Jesus. Resist sin like Jesus does. Trust God like Jesus does, but don't run towards temptation like Jesus does. Flee from it, knowing that Jesus has dealt with the devil and with our sin. Keep coming to God again and again in repentance and receive his forgiveness. So trust God. Whether it's in the face of temptation or in the face of guilt, trust God. Resist temptation where you can. Flee where you can. And don't try and be a hero. Because we've already got one. Let's pray. God, we thank you that Jesus has won our battle. He's lived our life. He died the death that we deserve. We praise you that his righteousness becomes ours as we trust you. So help us to keep doing that. Help us to flee temptation. Help us to turn from our sins. Repent of them. God, we pray you would make us more like Jesus. Make us more righteous. Make us more trusting. We pray you'd make us more in awe of Jesus as well and all he's done on our behalf. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.